The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. Double Olympic champion Casta Semenya has won her appeal at the European Court of Human Rights over its testosterone rule. The judgment coming from the court ruled that Semenya was discriminated against by rules that forced her to lower her testosterone levels in order to continue competing. I remember that era, but not as clearly as someone like Tola Gelemganga from EWN Sports does. She's now with me now in studio to talk a little bit about that story. Just help me understand the judgment. You know, we, we're hearing that she's been discriminated against. What does that mean? mean we have to be with with me now so i want to understand i remember that period it was a period where even political parties were all over that story i mean so much of who and what she was was under a lot of scrutiny during that period um help me understand this judgment today so we have to be wary of saying that it will allow her to race again so basically the european human rights court has ruled that she can go back to cas to go appeal against what World Athletics have ruled in terms of her having to lower her testosterone levels if she wants to run her preferred distance. World Athletics have said if Casta wants to run because she does not want to take hormone-suppressing drugs, she can run the 1.5 meters, which she did try to do and in order to qualify for the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, but she fell short of that qualifying time. But she's going, this is my preferred distance, the 800 meters, and this is what I want to run. So the court have ruled that they didn't allow, Cast did not allow Casta for her to put her case before them without any prejudgment. So she can go back to them and say, this is why the, the World Athletics rules are unfair. But I think a lot of people have to be aware that it's taken almost two years for Casta to be to have the chance to actually have success in to- towards her appeal. So it might take another two years for Cass to hear her and give any sort of verdict. I was actually worried about that because I saw the verdict and thought, does this mean we'll see her in that 800 meter once again? We haven't really seen her racing in a really long time. We haven't, not since 2020 when she tried to qualify for the Olympic Games. She has gone to the SA World Championships where she hasn't run, but has been a very, very much a supporter of the Team South Africa athletes that have been competing there. So she's taken on that spectator role. She hasn't said anything during this time. Only her lawyer, Greg Knott, has been the one that's been representing her. She's been fighting the situation through the courts. And I think more than anything, it's more of she's aware of the fact that she's 32. She's aware that even if she does have a small chance of getting back on the track, it's not really about her. It's the athletes that will come after her that will benefit in the long run because of this. Because as we sit here, World Athletics have come have come out with a statement to say they're aware of the judgments. They are working with CAS now to find out what the next step will be. But they are adamant that their rules make it fair in terms of female competition, that they're not going to change the rules that they have for athletes like Casta Semenya to be taking testosterone-suppressing drugs in order to compete. It is quite tragic because another Casta Semenya case could easily happen. Thank you so much. That's Solagin Mganga from EWN Sports speaking about the, the news coming out that double Olympic champion Casta Semenya has won her appeal at the European Court of Human Rights over its testosterone rules. Yes, it's discrimination, but what next? You know, what happens to the next Casta Semenya? Would love to get your thoughts on this and other stories. You can send comments to 072-702-1702 or 072-567-1567. On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. Specialists who enable your business growth aspirations. 
we've been talking about the trucks since the start of the week. Or if you think about it, from the end of the weekend where we spoke about the six trucks that were torched out in KwaZulu-Natal, then we had about five in Pumalanga. We are hearing of two now. Joining me to chat about the story is Ntanta Mabasa from Eyewitness News. Ntanta is in Mpangeni on the N2 highway at the moment. Ntanta, thank you so much for joining us. Um, what have you seen? Well, to the arrival here in the um, Bangani N2 highway, you are met with hundreds of trucks parked on the N2 highway side. And of course, these are the trucks queuing to drive inside the port of Richard's Bay to make their way there, either to deliver or collect some goods. But just three kilometers away from where these trucks are parked, you are met with two of the burned trucks that were burned last night. We are told by police that uh, a group of armed men allegedly forced the group of, I mean, the two drivers on two different trucks because they had parked next to each other. But when you arrive to the only thing that you can find there is the last trailer of the uh, two uh, of these two trucks because both of them were having had uh, double trailers, rather. But those mm. have now been bent. If you look at the head of the truck, they've been bent. That I imagine you spoke to a lot of people because a lot of us are still asking, is it economic sabotage? Is it just criminality? Is it about the July unrest? Who have you managed to find and what have you heard? Mayor Mbulisin of the city of Mshatwiza says, in fact, this is aiming at sabotaging the city's economy. Let's take a listen to what he said to EWN. This is a, an act of sabotage to the economy of the city of Mshatwiza. Because these goods get in and out of the port of Richards Bay. And the port of Richards Bay actually pays millions of rands of revenue to the city of Umshatose. And also it employs more than 1,500 people who are residents here in the city. Thank you so much. That's the mayor there speaking to Eyewitness News reporter Ntanta Maba. So about the trucks that were torched. Joining us now is Brigadier Jay Naika from the Jay Naika from the KwaZulu Natal Police to speak about the matter. Brigadier, this happened at around 10 p.m. From what I understand, it seems the same modus operandi was used as what happened to the other trucks on previous nights. Are you seeing the same thing? Do you believe it's the same people? There are links between these incidents. I see. Yes, you are right in saying the modus operandi is is the same. Uh, From the reports we received also, it was uh, the the same as the Fundraise Pass incident. It was approximately eight uh, gunmen. Uh, They approached these two truck drivers, held them up at gunpoint, robbed them of their personal belongings as happened at Fundraise Pass. They then pulled them out of the vehicle and set the vehicles alight. In terms, the police minister, Becky Kaila, a few days ago said that there were leads with regards to Sunday's incident. Um, are you hearing anything? Has there been any developments on your end? And again, do you think that the people who are responsible, who use the same modus operandi, are the same who are responsible for the incident that happened last night? I think I've lost uh, Brigadier Jay Naika. They're speaking about what happened on the N2 highway in Pangeni. Similar incidents reported in Pomalanga. The same thing happened. He's speaking now about the Fanrianans Pass incident where we saw what happened to the trucks. There's six trucks torched. The president of the country saying that it seems like economic sabotage. The police minister, however, saying that he does not believe that it is 
got this is anything to do with the July unrest. You might have heard Clement earlier on my colleague speaking about what Duduzile Zoom has been tweeting, you know, what she did two years ago saying, you know, I see you and trying to egg people on. What is your sense of what's going on? Here's another evening, more trucks. The impact on economies, on business is unfathomable. You are hearing about millions being lost. What is your sense? We'd love to hear from you. Send us a voice note or a WhatsApp. I'll give you my number in two seconds. You can send us an ad to 072-702-1702 or 072-567-1567. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Kate Talk. Joining us now to still unpack the issue around the trucks is uh, Lizette Lancaster, manager, manager of the Crime Hub at the Institute of Security Studies. Lizette, thank you so much for joining us. The police minister is adamant that this is not about the July unrest of 2021. It is very difficult to not make that link. Yes, thanks, Tidi, for having me. Um, it is very difficult. When we start seeing the trucks burning at the same type of places that these hotspots that have been prolific for a number of years on the anniversary, eve of the anniversary of the July violence of 2021, we all um, sit up and pay attention simply because that's how the July violence started. It started with the burning of trucks in key hotspots such as Moy River on the N2, and it later spread to the N4, exactly where we see these incidents happening now. So we do sit up and pay notice, um, pay attention, because it does become quite worrying. We know that um, some of the people that may be involved were also involved two years ago, potentially. Lizette, what do we then make of governments trying to play down that argument? When you hear police ministers saying it's got nothing to do with the July unrest, trying to almost distract the country from looking back at what's not been done, in my eyes, to make sure that we don't have another incident similar to what we saw when over 300 people died. CD, you are uh, correct. I mean, at this stage, all we have is um, our our own sort of opinions of why it is being downplayed. It could also be that they don't want to create the panic um, around what what transpired two years ago. But, um, of course, you know, by now South Africans have um, sort of taken note of the fact that we have problems with crime intelligence, that the police might not be up to the task. They have proven that things have gotten better somewhat, uh, somewhat when it comes to, you know, earlier this year when we had the EFF marches and they seemed quite prepared and coordinated. But the proof is still in the pudding. You know, hopefully we never have to see the widespread violence we did two years ago. What is your sense of where it continues to fail as intelligence? Um, one would have imagined, again, that the work would have been done. You actually mentioned the EFF march, uh, the shutdown, and the amount of firepower that the state unleashed on what should have been just a democratic exercise, really, is not what we're seeing when we need it on a day-to-day basis to keep the country going. They cry about the economy, but what is required to protect and shield the economy is seemingly not done. Yes, I think you've summarized it quite well. Um, it is also much easier to, to sort of, um, you know, canvas or, or, or create an event around 
an opposition party then to look at all these faceless, nameless um, actors that all made up the July unrest, you know, from organizations with the rail, uh, in the rail freight industry to, you know, um, groups within certain factions within the ruling party. So, so it was almost easier to look at this, this event um, of the EFF. Um, we also knew from the start that it, the numbers couldn't have been a lot, you know, given support and, and just previous events. So if we look at historical data, it is quite easy to predict almost. But what we also saw is that the police are largely quite reactive still. Um, I'm sure things are happening behind closed doors. We have seen changes in leadership with crime intelligence and other departments and divisions. But the question still is, is there a coordinated action being taken of those that omitted, you know, taking action during July violence or those um, local government leaders that also... Um, you know, didn't stop the violence, didn't speak up against uh, against it. Nobody has seen those people being brought to book or being spoken to, including the security forces that clearly ignored some of the events. Mm, what we've seen is conviction of somebody who looted at Woolworths, and we are seeing yeah. a former DJ being taken to court, yet this was labelled by the president himself as an insurrection. And one would have said, let's see who the faces of these to see the faces. Who are the people behind this? Just very quickly before I let you go, Lizette, let's speak about the surveillance that is actually required on those highways, on those networks, in order to protect um, the trucks and, in essence, South, Africa, South Africa's economy. Yes, exactly. So we know that there are these persistent hotspots, whether it is because of service delivery, um, you know, issues in communities, whether it is because of certain fora within the raw freight industry having issues with foreign drivers. We know what their modus operandi is. We know where they are likely to strike. I mean, you would, would think that the eve of the anniversary of um, two years ago would be a, a high alert event for people. So it is about having clear presence there, but it's also making sure that you've got the crime intelligence on the ground. By now, two years after the fact, one should expect that there are some, you know, crime intelligence operatives on the ground and in these organizations and communities. All right, thank you so much for your time. That's Lizette Lancaster, manager of the Crime Hub at the Institute for security studies. What are your thoughts? I mean, the issue of crime intelligence, where is it? And a lot of this always goes back to the issue of visible policing. We simply do not have that. What is your take? The idea that two years on, they weren't worried? They relaxed? Didn't think that there'd be something like this happening? Ah, It's too much of a coincidence for me. The Midday Report. Good afternoon, CD. You know, the sad part is that uh, athletes like uh, Kester didn't choose to be like that. They were born like that. So it's unfair to blame them or expect them to change who they are. And in fairness to other uh, women athletes, I would say if it's possible, maybe they can try creating a category specifically for people with high testosterone.
I don't know, Kennedy Jobek. Thank you for that, Kennedy and Jobek. Thank you for your voice note. And that's the thing is this doesn't seem to prevent the next Casta Semenya uh, scenario or incident unfolding where someone is discriminated against. So we need to keep an eye on it and see how it unfolds uh, going forward. The Midday Report. By now, I'm sure you might have heard that residents in Joburg will have a 58-hour water outage. How will it work and why is it being done? Here's a quick explanation from Randwater itself on what this is about. Here's Makinosi Marodo. As previously communicated, the planned rainwater shutdown is taking place from 7 p.m. on Tuesday, the 11th of July, until 5 a.m. on Friday, the 14th of July. Stationary water tankers will be provided for critical areas like hospitals, clinics, and old-age homes. Johannesburg Water will also provide roaming water tankers to all the affected suburbs. We are further requesting that customers are mindful and considerate when collecting water from the tankers that they preserve some for fellow residents coming after them. Areas not affected by this rainwater shutdown includes the Midrand and Greater Sentin areas. A part of Sentin supplied from the Dunkelt Reservoir will be affected. Further updates to residents will be provided during the shutdown. Thank you so much. That is Makinosi Maru. Sorry about that earlier. Explaining areas that will be affected um, and why there is this massive shutdown. Lots of areas. I'm hearing Santon won't be affected. Parts of Santon, parts of Midrand. 58 hours of a water outage that we need to prepare for. Speaking now to hydrologist and geologist, Dr. Gideon Grunewald. Dr. Grunewald, thank you so much for joining us. Let's first understand the number of days required for the shutdown. What is the saying to us about the infrastructure of water provision in the province? Uh, well, the, the, the main thing uh, is that I'm, I'm actually very excited that at least there is something being done now. Because the, the, the big problem that arise during the droughts before this, uh, the wet uh, part of our, of our cycle that we are now in, um, we, we had serious problems with infrastructure getting old, uh, you know, things getting really out of date in terms of the distribution of water. Now we see dams are overflowing in, in, in the area of Joburg and Gauteng and everywhere, but uh, the water still doesn't reach the people. So for me, this is on the one side, very good news that we actually now see action. And unfortunately for the people, because of the delays in the action over the last 25 years, we now, with this uh, upbeat in the fact that people are starting to now fix things, uh, the, the people have to live through these moments moments of, of hardship just to get things back to normal. So that is my viewpoint, is that we, we should be very happy that at least now taps are being fixed, pipes are being fixed, and, and for, for the sake of the future uh, of, of the whole of Gauteng, I think this is really important that people understand that once you, you have fallen, you have to stand up, and then you have to get some plaster, you have to fix the, the saw, and that is, I think, uh, what we are looking at at the moment so it's very very hard on everybody but at least we have water it's not a dry situation it's not the fact that there's no water rand water is now busy doing what had to be done a long time ago i would have preferred that this was done in stages but unfortunately i think the problem is so big that now the plaster needs to be very big 
I actually did want to ask you about that, about doing it in chunks and maybe in zoning in order to not make it an inconvenience on everybody in one big go. But you're saying that it is that big a problem where the plaster has to be this big. Yeah, you see what happened? As, as far as I can understand, remember, I'm very, very far away from the problem. I'm sitting in the crew. Uh, but uh, from my point of view, uh, the, the pipelines that brought the water from the Voldam uh, system into the waterworks uh, is outdated. Some of them are too small. Some of these things uh, had a natural decay. So some of the valves are not working properly. Uh, there are some power cuts, uh, all kinds of things happening and at least we are now seeing people ripping off and unfortunately if you if you have a big saw sometimes the doctor needs to really rip off uh, the, the plasters that was on that people were sticking on over the last few years now somebody needed to come along and really rip off and can clean it out and I think sure. that is that is the reason all right the thank pipe, you mm. the, the, yeah the two pipes are going to change is so large at the water works that it's causing this big big uh, in- intervention now. Alright, thank you so much. That's hydrologist and geologist Dr. Gideon Grudewald saying that it's that big a, a situation, that big intervention that is required. Remember areas that will be affected include parts of Rudderport and Randburg central areas, Ennerdale Southdale as well as parts of Soweto that big power, water outage rather in order to try and fix a problem that's been festering for a really long time. The Midday Report Hi, Tilly. Uh, the truth is that uh, this bumbling, leaders, leaderless uh, government of ours is completely clueless on what to do about uh, the crime situation uh, in this country. I mean, there's no crime intelligence to talk of. Uh, yeah, they're completely clueless. They have no idea. They don't understand what's going on. And uh, for them to say it's got nothing to do with the July 21 uh, riots, uh, they're just saying that because they have no clue. Thanks, Fry. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently. That's right, you're listening to the Midday Report. My name is C.D. Madia, standing in for Mandy Wiener. It's now 12.37. We cross our attention to Ekuruleni, where the ANC chairperson Banyaza Lusufi was due to open the Provincial Local Government Summit. It's taking place in Boxburg, kicked off this morning. I imagine there are a lot of issues on the table, but I suspect coalitions might supersede all the other discussions. Joining me for that is EWN senior reporter Ndaezo Notonje. Ndaezo, thank you so much for joining us. This is meant to be an assessment of the work of the ANC government at local level. Correct? Yeah, good afternoon, CD. That's uh, indeed what it's supposed to be. But as you rightfully mentioned there, uh, local um, coalitions are going to dominate uh, today's discussions. And that's uh, not only our view or your view, it is also that of uh, the ANC provincial chairperson, Panya Zalisu, who said uh, a lot about coalitions, including the fact that uh, they are not going to govern at all costs um, or want to be part of coalition agreements where they'll be put in a corner. I got the sense that he was uh, making reference to what is happening in Ekuruleni as far as coalition government is concerned. Um, He also went on to say that uh, the notion that uh, the executive mayor of the city of Johannesburg is an ANC stooge, is um, an unfounded allegation, basically saying they, the ANC, have decided that 
they will keep the DA out of power. And if it means bringing in someone like Kwakabelo uh, Kwamanda, so be it. Yet there are provincial government, a party in provincial government, that must navigate a DA run 20. Did you reflect on how difficult yeah. or how easy that's been in trying to build a relationship and work with local governments in the capital city? Yeah, and that is uh, something that he, he touched on. In fact, it's uh, the Midval and Twana. Those are the two uh, municipalities that the DA is currently running. Uh, the one in Twana is being run through a coalition. And uh, he's mentioned about some difficulties in uh, uh, getting um, you know, that municipality to deliver basic services. I'll make an example. There are at least two or three clinics in uh, Twana. I know of one called Mantasiteka. That clinic was probably finished building uh, before COVID, uh, but it has not been opened because according to the national, uh, the Gauteng Provincial Chairperson, Panya Zalisufi, he says uh, the municipality is refusing to connect uh, sewer lines and electricity and uh, give them occupation certificates. And those are just some of the difficulties where there are competences of provincial government in delivering some services, but they would need that um uh, 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 also interaction with uh, local mm. government and he's saying that it has made it very difficult and that's why the issue of the district development model will also be looked at uh, at this summit. Thank you so much. That's Ndaya EWN senior reporter out in Boxburg. The issue of a district development model is one we're going to revisit for a very long time. But Ndaya was speaking there about the issue of coalitions. And I don't think it's been smooth sailing. And he speaks about Ekuruleni, where the acting chairperson of the ANC in Ekuruleni, Jongi Zizun Zabati, had written a letter to the Secretary General of the ANC last week asking, could it be that we are in a costly coalition arrangement, complaining about the difficulty of trying to navigate coalitions? Of course, they're in a marriage with the EFF. I want to unpack a little bit of what one seems to expect from these with uh, political analyst Dr. Levi Ndo. Dr. Ndo, thank you so much for joining me. The ANC holding a local government summit. Realistically looking, can it realist, realistically look at issues of clean governance and restoration of public confidence when they're so bogged down in these coalitions that aren't seemingly working in the metro? Good afternoon, CD. Good afternoon to the listeners at home. Indeed, the state of uh, coalitions, specifically in the metros in South Africa, is quite worrying. The conduct of our politicians in these metros is also worrying. The instability and uh, infighting amongst politicians, which has a potential to derail service delivery, should be worried. And that is why uh, I would not be surprised that the ANC and the DA also is trying to develop different plans and strategies of managing coalitions in a manner that they will not be disruptive and they will also be able to focus on what they are required to do, which is service delivery. I wanted to make an argument that it's taken so long for them to get to that point where they're discussing what needs to happen with coalitions. I mean, the ANC for the longest time felt like it was in denial, but I do realize the importance of having this conversation ahead of the elections when provinces like Gauteng are likely to go to a coalition. When you look at the 
the chairperson in this capacity, Panyanza Lusufi, speaking as chair of the ANC, the credibility of someone like that delivering a message of what needs to happen to stabilize local government and looking at the ANC's performance when he himself has been pointed at by ANC members as being one of a pair, including the secretary of the province, TK Ngliza, that has allowed for these kind of unstable uh, coalitions to take place for being in a marriage with the EFF that doesn't serve the party. Do we not then question the credibility of the messenger in this regard? Well, to a, to a certain extent, people will do so. But the unfortunate part, CD, uh, is that coalitions are actually imposed on the uh, politicians depending on the voter patterns. One would have expected, indeed, that the ANC and all other political parties should have started the discussion on coalitions long time ago. The unfortunate part, in my view, is that the perception we have is that politicians would always work and act in the best interest of the citizens. And it appears that that is not the case when it comes to coalitions, especially in the metros. What we have observed are clear, unpatriotic, and disruptive behaviors by some of our politicians. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's exactly what people are seeing when it comes to these coalitions. That's Dr. Levando, a political analyst making sense of the ANC gathering to assess how it's been managing local government. It reminds of an opinion piece by an official communicator at the South African local government um, agency saying that cooperation and collaboration is needed now. That ideological differences between political parties don't matter much if service delivery is the basis of political coalitions coalitions those conversations are happening now the midday report the da is visiting families of the 17 people who died during a gas leak in boxburg last week eyewitness news reporter tabiso goba is there we cross to him now tabiso thank you so much for joining us the da i'm sure has stated as a political party its purpose for visiting these particular families um yes cd um as you said, um, they visited the families of the 17, um, 17 uh, deceased people who died last Wednesday. And what this, uh, what this purpose was that um, they wanted to check what the government interventions have done. And one of the main reasons or one of the main issues that um, came up here a lot is that a lot of these people that died were foreign nationals, either from Mozambique or Zimbabwe. And the people or the families that are left here do not have any money to sort of um, um, repatriate them or bury them in their hometowns. And that is what um, is, is the main crux of the issue. So now just take a listen to January Chuweri. So she is a Mozambican international who lost um, six of our family members in the gas leak. Tabiso, as this visit happens, from what I understand, the Zama Zama activity, the legal mining activity, operations have resumed this quickly in the area. Yes, um, Tidi, we spoke to a number of uh, people here, even the families and some of the community leaders 
who've told us that yes, um, the Zamazamas and the illegal mining have resumed. There has been some tension uh, within the community members. Now remember, Sidi, that uh, the Premier, Banya Lesufi, said that there will be a permanent police presence here. Now, what we've found out from the community is that that permanent police presence only lasted a day. And what they did actually was that they raided the local tavern. Um, other, anything other than that in terms of tackling the Zamazamas, they, they haven't seen them. And I've been here the entire day. I'm still here. And I can tell you, I haven't seen a police car in this area of the Angela Informal Settlement City. Mm, thank you so much. That's Sabiso Koba from EWN. That issue of a police presence. The Premier made a commitment just last week that there will be 24-hour police presence, visibility. And here we have a reporter from Eyewitness News saying, I've been here all day. I have not seen anything that the police were here, just raided the targets. Reminds me of the DA laying blame on this incident, on government saying that it was for far too long, rather. It's been demanding that provincial government implements a strategy to deal with illegal miners, but that this is fallen on deaf ears. It's decried the fact that there's not enough policing in the mining communities due to ill-equipped police stations. And now you're hearing a commitment made just last week by the Premier of the province has not been seen through. The Midday Report. We are sticking, continuing with the DA. Let me first start here with Solim Simanga, the provincial leader of the DA, who's out and about campaigning with the federal leader, John Stenazen. But Soli, before I even ask you about the campaigns, I think you might have heard our Eyewitness News reporter, Tabiso Koba, was out in Boxburg saying that a commitment by Premier Banyazali Sufi that there'll be 24-hour policing in an area where 17 people have died from illegal mining activity are not physically there, not there. Just your quick reaction, firstly. Well, thank you very much, T.D. Just to let you know, I was there myself this morning. Um, I visited all the families, all the 17 families. In fact, I've already written now to the High Commissioner of um, of, uh, of, of Mozambique to then say, look, uh, the families are now very much stranded. Um, they are being demanded uh, between eight and 15,000 a person to uh, be able to um, get the um, you know, the bodies of their loved ones to Mozambique, some people coming all the way from Shai Shai um, and the surrounding area. So, um, you know, they're not going to be able to then get the families there. It was quite shocking that, you know, one of uh, the ladies who was also um, hospitalized um, telling me the story that, you know, she she got to learn about the passing of 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 of, of uh, her husband literally um a couple of minutes you know when she um gained conscious um while in hospital and she was just given that information and a couple of hours later then she was sent on her merry way no counseling no nothing you know um given to them mm. i think uh, you know for me that's very heartbreaking but um you know we want to see what kind of assistance can be given whether you know um we're getting the 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 the, the high commission to take some responsibility um, you know, with this or whether we can do, um, I don't know what else we will be able to do. Uh, but I'm also going to be asking the, the, the Premier a number of questions. As, as uh, you, your reporter is saying, um, you know, a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, um, statements mm. are made. Um, a lot of promises are made because of, uh, you know, cameras. But uh, nothing um, comes out of it. Um, you know, we have been saying what happened Sorry, I, I want to leave that there. I think that people are being dealt with a lot of uh, carelessness. But, Sully, yeah. I want to speak about where you are today at the moment. Yeah. You are in Soweto with your federal leader, John Stenazen. Why is Soweto the area that you've picked to launch an election registration campaign, in essence, fighting for the soul of Gauteng? 
Well, um, thank you very much uh, for that, um, Tidi. Tidi, Gauteng is going to be, you know, the battleground in which, uh, you know, a lot will be done, um, you know, whether to win or to lose, um, you know, the hold of the ANC on, 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 uh, on South Africa. And I think that's where it starts. Um, and we are um, launching our, our registration campaign. And you would know that uh, we've been having a serious problem of people not coming out to vote. And we realize that a whole lot of people, especially young people, are not actually registering to vote. Um, and then we are saying, you know, you, you, you cannot board a train, um, you know, to a better future if you're not willing to buy the ticket. And buying the ticket is you getting registered mm-hmm. and ensuring that, uh, you know, you are able to then cast your vote, um, you know, come um, um, next year, May, where we will have an opportunity um, to elect a new um, you know, leadership, um, you know, to lead this province of Gauteng. And right. hopefully, you know, this will be the turning point, what, uh, you know, we would like to call the 1994 of our time. Um, you know, the dreams that uh, have somehow been deferred can actually then be realized um, in uh, 2024. All right. Thank you so much. That's Salim Semanga, DA Gauteng leader, who's out and about with the federal leader, John Stienazen. They've got multiple stops around the province where they'll be campaigning. The Midday Report. We look at proudly South Africa now. Um, we love, uh, well, I love wine. Let me actually say, <laughs> declare it now. I love wine. The proudly South Africa wine, local wine expo is backed by popular demand. It's set to take place at the prison break market in Lone Hill. I'll speak now to Happy Malkumalongiti, who's the chief marketing officer of Proudly SA. Happy, thank you so much for joining us. This is a celebration of South African wines, right? Yes, it is. And I'm glad that you started off by saying you love wine. We're hoping many South Africans love wine, local wine uh, specifically. So it is a celebration uh, of locally manufactured wine, uh, but it also is a celebration of women-owned wine brands. Uh, we have 30 wine brands that we're showcasing uh, at the proudly South African Wine Expo, but uh, you know, 99% of those are women. So it's a beautiful story to tell. Uh, so you know, we are expecting a beautiful camaraderie, uh, like-minded people in the same space. Uh, you know, pouring the wine, smelling the wine. Uh, you know, uh, you know, engaging the, with the wine, tasting it. But ultimately, obviously buying the wine because it's an access to market opportunity for these wine brands. Um, because we're of the view that it's one thing for us, or for anybody rather, to, wine and inc- to own an incredible product. But if they don't have a market to sell it to, it defeats the purpose, right? Absolutely. Let's speak about just coming back. That You've been away for a while. What has it taken to make the comeback? How difficult has it been trying to set this particular event together? So we're driven by not being complacent. Uh, you know, so we started last year, by, uh, by the way. So it was our inaugural one last year uh, where we saw a need to uh, create an access to market opportunity for our our member uh, 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 wine brands because all of the people that are showcasing are actually affiliated with Proudly South African. It's an opportunity for them. And last year, we had about 20 wine brands. And let me tell you, over a period of three days, they were all 
sold out. In fact, on the third day last year, we had to close the doors a little bit early, which was not a very popular uh, decision to make, but because those, these brands had sold out completely. So this year, it promises to be bigger and much better. Uh, you know, the choice of venue is very intentional. Um, that venue has a very lovely environment to it. There's a market that is very popular in Johannesburg. Uh, these brands are from, you know, outside of the region already, but many of them are, are from Gauteng. And uh, there's lots of touch points that we're adding to this experience. You know, for us to be bold enough to ask South Africans to come and support these wines, best we make it, uh, you know, make sure that it is worth the time of the consumer, the time that the consumer is going to spend there, and also their heart and money. So there's lovely activations that we're throwing into the basket. For example, we have on Thursday, which is the first day, a Pusa Thursday, but we're also throwing in something called a, 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 a 10 past 4. Literally, in our ten past four, and basically we are saying, "I was an Afghan, but come with your friends, and if you are there at ten past four on the dots." You stand a chance to win a case of wine. Who's going to give you a case of beautiful local <laughs> Thank wine? So Make no mistakes. Thank you for uh, that. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. That is Happy Makumalengiti, Chief Marketing Officer of Proudly SA, as they bring back the wine experts from the July the 13th uh, until the 15th. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.